0: This is Rachel Halzell hall and you're listening to Writer Types.
1: Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. This is Lawrence Block.
2: This is the Post. This is Laura McHugh.
3: This is Jennifer Hillier.
4: Hi, this is James Ziskin. Well, that's an interesting question.
5: That's a good question. <laughs> that's a great question.
4: I'm Don
1: Winslow, and you're listening to Writer Types.
4: Welcome, I am your host, Eric Beatner, and I have three authors for you today, uh, along with some book recommendations from the Malmans. So let's get right to it. But first, I do wanna say that I hope everyone out there is staying healthy and safe. These are strange times for sure, but I hope I can help you pass a little time and give you some ideas of some great books to read. And hey, if you know there's some of my books, well, then we both win. So, okay, uh, my first guest is Amy Engel. Amy burst onto the crime fiction scene with the Roanoke girls and now she's back with her latest novel The Familiar Dark. It's the story of Eve Taggart who takes it upon herself to find out the truth about her daughter's murder and it ends up running her into some uncomfortable truths about her own mother. Publishers Weekly said it was somewhere between Gillian Flynn's Sharp Objects and Daniel Woodrell's Winter's Bone and wow that is a hell of a recommendation. So here's my conversation with Amy Engel. Well, Amy, you come recommended by my friend and fellow Ozark crime writer, Laura McHugh. So
2: yes.
4: I want to know, what is in the water over in that <laughs> neck of the woods that's making you guys write so dark?
2: I, I don't know. You know, that's a good question because Laura and I laugh when we're together because we, on the outside, we're these wholesome Midwestern girls and um, people look at us and don't think, hmm, really dark writing, but uh, it just comes naturally. I think maybe part of it is just a desire to sort of tell stories about a part of the country and in a way that is unusual. A lot of people think of the Midwest. They have a very specific idea about it, you know, small towns yeah. and everyone's happy and cheery and and that parts of that is true. But I think there's a you know, there can be a darker heart to some of those small towns. And so that's just a a really ripe area for storytelling, I think.
4: Yeah, for sure. I was I was born in Iowa myself, and I've okay, set, a, yeah. set a couple of books there. And I just, I think it's it it, it does smack of uh, all sorts of misinterpretations. And, uh, and w- when I moved to the East Coast in, in Connecticut, like, yeah, I was confronted with a bunch of people who were like, you're from Iowa? What are you, a farmer? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I w- I'm from a little college town.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I went to law school actually in Washington, D.C., and so many people that I met, and this is not, this is 100% true, were shocked that I could drive a car. They thought since <laughs> I was from Kansas that we all drove tractors, like everywhere.
1: Wow. Just
2: around and yeah, I was surprised how how many people think that. <laughs> For the record, I cannot drive a tractor. So, there you go.
4: Well, have you ever tried and failed? You don't know, maybe you can. Oh, yeah, maybe
2: I could. Maybe I could. <laughs> True.
4: It's in your blood.
2: <laughs> exactly.
4: <laughs> well, the new book, The Familiar Dark, it's at its core, it's a book about mothers and daughters. Right. Now, why choose a thriller to explore these mother-daughter relationships? Because, you know, when you hear, oh, it's a book about mothers and daughters, you probably picture, uh, most people picture a very different kind of book.
2: You know, I think that the mother-daughter relationship, it's just one of the most obviously fundamental relationships that exists. And it can be so fraught. I, you know, I don't know. Anyone like a personal friend or my family who has the same type of relationship as Eve and her mom in the book, fortunately. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, even in the best of mother daughter relationships, there can be so many competing emotions. And I just find it a really fascinating relationship. Whether you decide you want to be just like your mom or nothing like your mom, either way, your mom is influencing you. And I just wanted to explore that sort of to the extreme.
4: You were first published uh, with a pair of YA novels before you wrote uh, your novel, The Roanoke Girls. Was YA a, a diversion or did you think that that would be your lane?
2: No, I don't think I ever thought that would be my lane. I just had the idea for that book and this sounds I don't know how this sounds in my head it doesn't sound great but um <laughs> I thought YA might be easier to break into as a brand new writer. Oh. And I didn't at that time I didn't have an agent and it was a smaller publisher but they they get their books into bookstores and so It was a way to sort of test the waters. And so it was sort of um, just the way it happened, but it wasn't this master plan that I thought I would always be a YA author. I think dark adult novels are definitely my wheelhouse, and that's where I was always sort of headed.
4: Well, you're you're firmly there now, so Yeah. uh, yeah. Now, you have said that the the setting for the Roanoke girls came to you first, and the story sort of spilled out from there. I mean, is that a typical way that a story comes? Because the familiar dark is very much about the locale.
2: Right. Yeah, the setting is always extremely important to me. Probably in Roanoke, the setting... It came first because my mom was raised in a really small town in Kansas, and my great-grandparents lived there until they died when I was in college, and we spent a lot of time there, and it, it was just such a distinct place. I knew I wanted to set a book in a town based on that place for the familiar dark i had it sort of came to me i i don't know how many people are familiar there was a um, case in delphi indiana a few years ago where two 13-year-old girls were murdered on train tracks and they've never solved it and it it has nothing to do with my book other than there was the murder of two girls but it just stuck with me and so for the familiar dark that was the first sort of idea that I had, but I knew I wanted to set it in the Midwest, either Missouri or Kansas. And the Ozarks just seemed like the perfect spot for it. When I started imagining the characters and their relationships and the lives they were leading, it just all came together.
4: So when you see a news story like that or or get some sort of spark, are you the kind of person like you running around with a notebook all the time? Are you constantly keeping notes like, oh, this could turn into something? Or is it the little nuggets of stories that stick in your brain and and are persistent that end up being something that evolves into a novel.
2: Uh, probably more the latter. I I have a notebook around when I'm actually actively writing because mm. a lot of times random sentences will come to me, you know, when I'm falling asleep or when I'm just getting out of the shower and I just want to jot them down. But as for the ideas for a whole book, those tend not, I don't like keep a notebook for those so much. Those are just things, like you said, that stick in my head and I can't quite get them out. And that that's usually what turns into a book.
4: Yeah. It sounds like you and I are, I think are very similar. I've, I've always, people have asked for advice and I always tell them to to not do what I do, which is I, I kind of actively don't write stuff down, but right. It is those stories that if they hang around in my brain and I'm still thinking about them weeks or months later I'm like, "Oh, maybe there's something here." Yeah,
2: exactly. Maybe this is this is what I needed. Yeah.
4: And do you have a lot of uh a lot of false starts and a lot of like, "Oh, this is something I need to pursue this and then you pursue it a little way down the lane and you realize, "Uh, eh, maybe there's not really a, a full story here."
2: That's a good question. I don't know that I have a lot of false starts so much as I just have a lot of no starts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where there's periods of time where I'm not really writing. And I used to feel guilty about that. But now I realize that's just the process that I go through. I'm not actively writing, but things are churning in my head. And I sort of have to wait till they get to a certain point. And then I realize, okay, yes, this this is the book. Let's go. And so generally, once I start on something, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be able to, to see it all the way through.
4: You're you're tenacious in that way.
2: Yeah, I I think it's, I didn't want to fall into the trap. When I was younger, a lot of times I would start writing something and then I'd get to, you know, the hard part, the middle, and I'd be like, yeah, I'm bored. And (laughs) (laughs) I'd stop. And so my rule now is even if I hate it or I think it's not going anywhere, I make myself finish.
4: Oh, wow. Is that a rule uh, in the rest of your life? Like, if you, do you put down a book that you're reading that you're not loving or I it I
2: do put down books. I didn't used to, uh, but as I've gotten older, you know, there's so many books and it, just because a book's not for me doesn't mean it's a bad book, obviously, right. but sometimes I'm like, you know, I just, I'm not feeling this one right now. I may come back to it or it's just not for me and I'll, I'll put it down and go to something else. And I don't feel as guilty about that as I used to.
4: Yes. No. We should not feel guilty.
2: No. No.
4: <laughs> well, you are one of the few ex-lawyers who does not write courtroom novels. So I, no. I just I want to say on behalf of the entire crime fiction community, thank you.
2: <laughs> you are welcome.
4: <laughs> There's plenty out there.
2: Yeah, I have no desire to do that.
4: You would think you would be getting pressure from publishers because they they love. Oh my gosh, a former lawyer now is going to turn and write the the next you know Scott Tyrone novel right. or whatever do, have no. you got pressure
2: no i have not i have not i i think probably my editor and agent know that that's not really something i'm interested in doing at least not right now i don't know it's it's never really interested me that much yeah i don't think i could do a courtroom mainly because i know how boring most of courtroom (laughs) stuff is. I guess that's true with all fiction. You're, you know, making things more interesting than they they are a lot of times. But yeah, generally courtroom stuff is a snore. That's a secret I'm going (laughs) to tell everyone.
4: (laughs) So to balance the authenticity, you would have to make it boring.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I I don't know. I don't know why it doesn't interest me. Overall, as, as a career, it's definitely you know, got some interesting moments, some heartbreaking moments, but maybe because it's too close, I I'm not interested in writing it. I'm not sure.
4: Yeah, I could see that. I, I've got pressure uh for a long time from an agent that I used to have to write uh like a Hollywood book. Yeah. Since I, you know, I, I live and work in the entertainment industry. Yeah. And yeah, there was just something about like I I don't want to come home from work and then write about work.
2: Yeah. Yeah, there's a reason I'm not a lawyer anymore, so.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Next up is a debut author, M.L. Huey. His debut novel, Spitfire, is a historical thriller about Livy Nash, a female spy in post-war Europe. And Livy is indeed a Spitfire. It has the thrills and intrigue of the spy novel and the kind of heroine that you just cannot help root for. Uh, And, you know, before we started to officially record our interview, uh, Michael had this to say. Thank you for joining me, taking the time out.
1: Thank you. I have to say I'm a legit fan of writer types. Oh, wow. I have bought books after listening to your podcast.
4: (laughs) Well, Um, that's lovely to hear. No, no. So
1: when they said they want you to be on writer types, I uh, told my family, the podcast I really wanted to be on is going to (laughs) happen.
4: So let that be a lesson to writer-type guests of the future. It always helps to butter up the host. I love a good World War II novel, and this one has spies, but it felt a little different, not only because it takes place right after the war, but probably because of the protagonist, Livy Nash. Now, did you purposely want to stay away from this sort of dashing male spy trope that we've seen so often? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'm a spy fan. And so I've seen that
1: uh, done to death. And I also wanted to create a different kind of female protagonist as well. I mean, you know, Livy's kind of, uh, she's working class. She's uh, kind of rough around the edges. She's very direct. Um, she's not your typical, what you, most people think of as your typical 1940s woman.
4: Right. Yeah, she she spends uh, the first couple of chapters, uh, I think, just in a series of rubbing people the wrong way and <laughs> ticking them off. Yeah, she does that well.
1: Uh, <laughs> one of her, uh, you know, skill sets. Uh, yeah. And until we first meet her, too, she's, you know, she's depressed. She's drinking herself to sleep every night with black market vodka. So, uh, you know, she's um, maybe a slightly different type even than the female protagonist that we see now so much and, and, and a lot of successful series out there that are World War II era.
4: Yeah. Now, of the women in your life who read this and got mad at you because you, they thought that you were writing about them.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Not my wife. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> uh, although I will say that, you know, people always ask me the question, you know, were you intimidated to write a woman? I, when people ask me that question, I always refer back to something one of my favorite writers said. I uh, may have been on writer types, Megan Abbott, when she mm. said, I'm not a killer, but I write killers.
4: Well, it it seems like every new story that gets unearthed about World War II is more fantastic than any <laughs> novel or movie that we've ever seen. Was Libby's experience based on any real stories that you've heard?
1: Not her, not the storyline, but she is based on a couple of real women. Uh, one called Nancy Wake, uh, who was uh, an SOE spy. And there's a great story about her that when she parachuted into France, her parachute got hooked on a tree. And a uh, member of the French Resistance met her. And it was a guy. And he looked up and he said something like, oh, I wish all the trees in France bore such beautiful fruit. And, <laughs> right. And she apparently said to him, cut the French shit. <laughs> um, so i thought that's the kind of character i'd like to see in one of these books
4: well and you've unearthed this uh, this sort of spy ring uh, that that has gone on and that extended after the the war hit was over and is that based in reality true because that's some, that's definitely something that i was not really aware of
1: um there were all kinds of spy networks during the war and the one it's based on is the one uh, one the soviets had called the red orchestra uh, which was actually pre-World War II. But the idea of one uh, surviving the war um, is something I've never heard of. Um, but I thought, you know, these people are still there. Um, they still might want to make money and probably some of them um, would be very opportunistic like that. And and the it came, the first piece of research I did to write this book was rewatch the movie The Third Man.
4: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, and that sort of, you know everybody's in it to get what they can post-war post-war um kind of atmosphere was what i wanted to create
4: well as you were writing did, did you know who was to be trusted and who wasn't because you know by the end of this book there's not a whole lot of people that are, are turn out to be very trustworthy <laughs> <laughs> right right
1: um yeah, for this book, I didn't outline. I like to outline sort of as I go to surprise myself. I'm finding more that as I write more that that is a horribly frustrating thing to do, and I'm changing my ways. I mean, I I, I knew a couple of people would not be trusted, and then uh, as it went through some rewrites with my agent and a couple of things that a publisher or two suggested, I uh, uh, made other people less less trustworthy as well. Uh, Ian Fleming, who's a uh, a character in the series is also—you know—is to assure that he's completely on her side as well.
4: Yeah, I—I I, I wanted to ask you about that too. Is you know, people obviously know Fleming, and and I think a fair amount of people do know a little bit of his real life background. But you—you uh, you pushed him right into the action in this.
1: Well, you know, it's funny Ben McIntyre, who writes uh, uh, nonfiction espionage. Uh, wrote this thing for some sort of Bond anniversary. And he talked about Fleming, you know, working uh, after the war, uh, running foreign correspondence. And that Fleming said a lot of them worked for MI6. And then that that bit that's in the book about his, uh, him in his office, him having this giant map of the world with little glowing light bulbs where his correspondents were.
5: I right. thought, oh my gosh,
1: he is he's M. Uh, and knowing <laughs> what you know about Ian Fleming and that and, and he was sort of um, had kind of a the mentality sometimes of a 12 year old boy. Um, you know, I thought, well, that's perfect. Uh, he needs to be him because you know, people always write him as a surrogate Bond. And right. I, I've, I've never really thought that works for who he really was.
4: Now, do you think uh, Livy would stand for any of James Bond's? Uh misogynist nonsense? Oh, hell no. no. No way. She
1: doesn't stand for uh, some of Fleming's misogynistic nonsense. Um, no, she's, um, yeah, and that's that was a part of the allure of that. I mean, I'm a, uh, I've been a Bond fan most of my life, but nowadays, of course, you read them with your eyes wide open and go, oh, my God, you know, these books are misogynistic, homophobic, racist. So putting someone like Fleming and his kind of issues with women – opposite a woman like Livy, I think was really part of the fun of writing it.
4: This being your debut novel, is this something that uh, you were always going for a historical? You were always going for uh, this type of mystery? Have you tried out a lot of other things on the, your journey to get here?
1: For some reason, uh, historical fiction is is apparently what I want to do. I wrote, like a lot of authors, I wrote two novels Uh, before this one that live in a drawer in my desk Uh uh, and no one will ever see, and they are both um, historical fiction. Um, So, yeah, but I was never really interested in World War II at all, um, until I read this book, Codename Verity by Elizabeth Wien, which is a Hmm. YA novel, and it is fantastic, and it really opened my eyes to the SOE and the, the role women played, and I thought, you know, this is a Something I can really sink my teeth into.
4: Well, we touched on it a little bit, but, uh, you know, you did set the action in, in in post-war Europe and not during the height of the war. I mean, what what was interesting to you about that that little bit of remove from, from the height of, of combat, which is where you, you would think all of the action is?
1: Yeah. One of the things that inspired me was when I was writing this, I went through for the first time in my life, a period of unemployment, which I know whenever this comes out, probably a great many of the listeners are going through that as well. Yeah, <laughs> um, but this was several years ago, and it was the first thing that happened to me and I felt, you know, kind of betrayed and, and I thought, well, what if you were one of these women who really sort of had an affinity for this type of work during the war? It's dangerous, you know, behind the enemy lines sort of stuff. And then you were just told to come home and, you know, do sort of a, a traditional women's job, you know, live traditional women's roles uh, how would you feel? Uh, and so that's why I thought, well, let's, let's see a woman who is having a hard time fitting back into society. Then let's have Ian Fleming get her to be a spy again. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, Libby certainly, uh, seems like she's ripe for having more adventures in, in store. Are you uh, hard at work on book two? Are you already on book three?
1: Uh, no, I, we, uh, book two is coming out in September. Okay. And then beyond that, you know, uh, that's not totally up to me. But we we'll, uh, i do have a, I do know what will happen to Libby if there is a book three.
4: And uh, you know, obviously, the the sort of post-war, you know, it—the tentacles of of what happened reverberated around so much of the globe. I mean, it, you could really take her into a lot of different environments, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's uh, she comes to America, thank God, in the second book. Uh, oh, okay. which was much easier to write uh, for me. So, uh, so, yeah, I mean, she can go anywhere. And, and my hope is that her career uh, can sort of span the breadth of the Cold War itself, at least up into the 60s. Uh, you know, I'm a big film noir fan. And so uh, that time sort of really goes, they go together very well, I think, spies and, and noir.
4: Well, okay, you're, you're a noir fan. Uh, it, we're here, everyone's locked down, uh, trapped inside their homes. Uh, what's, what's your go-to noir uh, that you want to recommend to people to alleviate a little bit of the stress of uh, hanging out by yourself? Oh, great question. Um, I would say probably my favorite is
1: The Sweet Smell of Success. Oh. Uh, it's a little late in the noir period, um, but the script... Is so nasty. Uh, Tony Curtis and Burt Lancaster, I mean, some of the lines are just leap off the screen and, uh, you know, as everyone who likes noir, you know, I, I too, worship Eddie Muller on TCM and his intro where he said that, you know, people just practically hated each other during the shooting of that film. It's a bitter movie, but, it, man, it's
4: I love it. Yeah, It was telling a little bit when you mentioned that you went back and you watched the movie of The Third Man instead of going back to the book for the Graham Greene novel. Yes, <laughs> is it is that uh when you need i mean i guess for me it's like you need that quick hit like i can take in a 90 minute film obviously faster than you can read a book
1: the thing about historical fiction is you know i i you know we did go to paris a family trip and so that was kind of research in london as well but i can't go there in 1946 but through film i can
4: yeah well it's a little little time capsule absolutely yeah Excellent. Well, we look forward to uh, Livy's next adventure. Uh, You said September. What's the title of that one? Uh, It's called Nightshade. Nightshade. Oh, Mm, yeah. Can we expect a poisoning or two? (laughs) There is no
1: literal poisoning. Uh, Uh, There may be poisoning of the mind and the
4: soul. (laughs) Aha. How very writerly of you? (laughs) So time now to check in with our resident reviewers, the Malmans, all the way from Minnesota with some new book recommendations. Well, Dan and Kate Malman, we are all in our uh, going into our second month of lockdown here. I think a lot of people are actually making some progress through their to be read piles and it's time for us to help them.
5: Okay, we're here to help.
4: Good. Uh, I've always considered you two uh, like a team of superheroes, and, and you're here to swoop in with your capes and your, uh, and your thigh-high boots and, and all the stuff that superhero people use, and you, you know more than I do, Dan, on that front. I just have my, uh, my magical snowblower. That's
3: really all that there, there is to it. <laughs> I'm snowblowing crime and snow. Yes, because we are recording this on Easter Sunday, and snow is falling in Minnesota. Yeah, um, so we seem to be losing the never-ending battle. That sounds (laughs) crazy to me. Are there any superheroes that have snow powers? There's Iceman uh, from the X-Men, and I think his powers are uh, self-explanatory.
2: There's Uh, a Frozone. (laughs) Frozone from From, The Incredibles. Ah,
3: Oh,
4: yeah, there you go. Doesn't doesn't Silver Surfer ride on a thing of ice or something? He's more um,
3: silver He's more of a of, of metal than, a, than oh is that what is yeah. that what
4: that is? That, thank you, Danny. I could hear the patience in your voice when, <laughs> when you were trying to explain that to me, like a three year old. Yeah,
3: you know, it's kind of in the name, Ice Man
4: Silver Surfer. <laughs> <laughs> Someday I'll get you to explain the difference between the hyphens, where like you get the Spider hyphen Man, and then you get the Batman, which is all one thing. And
3: I always assumed you- it was he was taking his wife's maiden name with the hyphen. <laughs>
4: Well, speak, speaking of comic books, Dan, and uh, and we just have, and I think we've used our weekly allotment of comic books, but I'm going to let you off the chain on this one because you've been reading uh, some new comics by our friend Alex Segura, right? Absolutely. This is good stuff. Alex, along with Monica
3: Gallagher, has come up with a uh, a digital first series put out by the website Comixology, um, called The Black Ghost. And what this is, uh, it's... Really, a, I think, a love letter to a lot of the classic vigilante superhero tropes, um, but with some really sharp updates. Basically, uh, we're introduced to Laura Dominguez, uh, who's the cops reporter for a mythical uh, city of uh, Crichton. Instead of dealing with her assignments, she's following the city's lone superhero, the Black Ghost, and it's basically become an obsession.
4: But now, is this is, is as literal as the others, as the Iceman and Spider-Man? Is this is this literally a ghost?
3: No, this is, uh, Black Ghost is basically a guy in a suit. It's it's the iconography. The snap brim hat and the uh, a black cape.
4: It sounds like a little bit of a throwback, like a shadow type person. Exactly.
3: That's exactly what I was reaching for and failing.
4: I'm here to help, Dan.
3: He falls in the line of duty. And um, she, as she's trying to pick up her... The threads of her disintegrating life picks up his mantle. What's more interesting than just the the standard tropes of the genre is what Laura is dealing with. You know, those that have re- are familiar with um, Alex's crime novels, um, you may see some familiar threads. She had a troubled um, time as a reporter in Miami. Um, she deals with alcoholism. Her relationships are in a shambles. And there's some mystery connection between, you know, the death of her brother and, and is there a connection with her obsession with the Black Ghost? The backstory is dark. The backstory is gritty. There's really stuff to sink your teeth into side by side with actually some pretty bright, energetic storytelling and art from George Kambadis, uh and Marco Finnegan. So really good stuff all around.
4: All right. Well, congratulations to Alex. And what's the name again of his co-writer?
3: It is called uh, The Black Ghost by Monica Gallagher and Alex Segura.
4: All right. So we know uh, for a fact, knowing Alex well, that Monica probably was the one who did most of the work and, uh, and the artists are the ones who really bring it to life. So Alex is once again, right the coattails of uh, three other people to glory. Absolutely. Oh,
3: the other cool part, um, if, since this is what's called a Comixology original, it, if you subscribe to Comixology for your regular weekly books, um, then it's free with their, their unlimited program. It's also free with Kindle Unlimited, and prime reading. So there's really no excuse for anybody not to be picking it up.
4: There you go. Now that's perfect stuff for uh, these quarantine times Mm -hmm. is uh, when someone's going to throw some free entertainment at you. Absolutely. Yes. And I think uh, uh,
3: despite this review, everybody's really going to enjoy this. (laughs) Despite
4: my part of the review. (laughs) I've tried to throw them off the scent, but I will freely admit you should pick this up. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) All right. And Kate, you've been uh, checking out a new anthology Mm -hmm. slash novel in stories uh, by some friends of ours.
5: Yeah. I I read Swamp Killers, edited by E.A. Amar and Sarah Chen. Uh, They were also the brains behind the uh, anthology slash novel in stories, uh, or The Night of the Flood. And I was really intrigued by The Night of the Flood and how they pulled it together. So I was excited to see that they tried it again and, and they pulled it off. Um, and this book, a guy by the name of Timmy Milici or Milici, ran off with Melanie Duplass. Uh, Timmy is a low-level member of a crime family. Melody happens to be the daughter of the queenpin of the crime family. And not only did the two of them run off, they also left with a lot of the crime family's money. So Olivia, the queen pin, sends out her hitmen and assassins to get her daughter and money back. And well, whatever happens to Timmy happens to Timmy. <laughs> and
4: you're and you're off. And uh, you're off. Yeah. That's that's the so you just described uh, chapter one basically.
5: Well, that's that's the uh, quote. What we know. So in ah. this book, in Swamp Killers and in Night of the Flood, they give you kind of the premise of this is what happened, and this is where we're taking off. What's I think is brilliant is. They can thread the story through all of the short stories. Each short story stands on, it on its own, but there is that thread of the overarching story that goes throughout. So it follows the hitman and what happens to the money that they allegedly stole. You end up in this like weird portion of Florida where it's guns and gators and God knows what else is going on out there. What is basically a Quentin Tarantino movie as a book. Oh. Yeah.
4: Well, now, a, a project like this uh, sort of lives and dies by the contributors to it, and mm-hmm. they've, they've got some uh, some really entertaining writers that participated in this one, right? It's, it's all different names from Night of the Flood, yeah?
5: Nope. There are a couple holdovers. Um, Ed Amar, Sarah Chen, and J.J. Hensley all contributed, I know, to the first one, and then right. they did bring in some some new voices. And what I thought was great is I got exposed to some writers that I would have never run across before, like... Susie Holiday writes the short story called 40 bucks at night. And it's this focuses on this English couple who's traveling through, you know, America driving from Charleston, South Carolina to Jacksonville, Florida. And they end up stuck in this $40 a night hotel because they run out of gas or petrol. They end up crossing paths with some of the hitmen, And it's, it's this fantastic tale. It's told from the wife's point of view and, yeah, it's it's just chilling. And I would have never run across Susie Holiday if I hadn't read this book.
4: Well, there you go. They're kind of creating their own uh, subgenre with this this style of book. I wonder if this is going to catch on.
5: I would hope so. I think it's super clever. I'm Because I'm a process person and because my background is trying to figure out how they did it, is I want to know how they did it.
4: Well, I will ask them that because Ed and Sarah are going to be my co-hosts on the next episode. Well,
5: nice. How about that? All right.
4: Any other questions for them? Like Um, we can ask Ed how he got so goddamn handsome. I was going to ask Sarah how she puts up with Ed. Yeah. Uh, Well, that is one of the mysteries of the universe, I think. (laughs) We may never know. (laughs) Well, stay safe and healthy, guys. uh, And uh, we'll talk to you soon. And and I hope that you still haven't knocked down your entire to-be-read pile. Is there still a lot for you to get through?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've got some good ammunition and um, some
4: good... Hot coming attractions, you know, for oh. stuff coming up soon. Well, I will uh, send up the bat signal, and uh, we'll get you back on soon to tell people what they should be reading next. Absolutely, Sounds that's good.
3: a bat. That's a signal.
4: Yeah, I know it's in the sky. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> but frankly, that, again, another problem that doesn't work if it's not a cloudy night. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I'm just I'm going to tear this whole thing down for you, Dan. By the time I'm done with you. God, you're worse than like the, the whole comics
3: authority and the, the trials in the fifties. Yeah. You got a vendetta. You have a vendetta. You're a you're a villain.
4: That's right. I wear a Guy Fox mask. Ooh, <laughs> deep cut. Look at that. I got him with some knowledge that he didn't think I knew. <laughs> really, I'll just watch any movie in Natalie Portman's in. Exactly. Yes. All right, cool. My final guest this week is michael ledwidge his latest thriller stop at nothing is out now and what starts as a small noirish story of a fishing boat captain who comes upon a downed airplane with some mysterious secrets then explodes into a full-blown conspiracy thriller now ledwidge has spent the past decade writing 14 novels alongside james patterson and in doing so has become one of the best-selling authors around But he's here to talk about his new novel and to hand out some advice to writers who think they don't have the time or the right environment to write that first book. Michael Edwidge, uh, thank you for joining me on Writer Types. Uh, And in your new novel, Stop at Nothing, you've taken what is my favorite subgenre of crime novels, which is the finding a stash of money and trying to keep it despite uh, it being a terrible idea. (laughs) And... uh, and this one you've sort of supercharged it with this big government conspiracy thriller wrapped around it is this a little uh, niche in the in the crime market that you also love and, and have a history with
0: yes you know i'm i'm a big fan of uh, all different types of thrillers and uh uh this was just a, something new for me to try there's an old movie i i think the most one of the most similar things to it is a uh, is a movie with uh it's called Flashpoint. It's with um, Treat Williams. Oh, yeah, yeah. And
4: Chris Christopherson.
0: They're a couple of border agents, and they find uh, money along the border that also opens up a conspiracy. So uh,
4: so this doesn't uh, come from any personal experience then. It's not like you've uh, even just finding a wallet on the street and had to think for a second, well, do I give this back? It's just,
0: it's- <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Although I, it's funny, one time I... Uh, me and and my girlfriend, and when I was in college, and, uh, she, she turned out to be my wife, which was great. But uh, we actually won money from uh, McDonald's and one of those—not uh, uh, the Monopoly game, it was the Scrabble game. We actually won oh, uh, twenty-five thousand dollars.
4: Whoa!
0: Yeah, we were a boyfriend and girlfriend at the time, and uh, and we, you know, we, we had already decided if we if we would win money, we'll split it. But all my friends were saying to me, you know, that's crazy. You're 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 splitting all this money with, with with this girl. You know, what if you break up? You know, but we we got married, so it, it all worked out.
4: <laughs> there you go, M- McDonald's making dreams come true, and and, and couples happen.
0: There you yeah, great.
4: Well, uh, your the hallmark of, of your novels is definitely uh, nonstop, fast paced action. So, how do you balance the pace with also making sure that the characters come through?
0: One one of the great opportunities that I've had with with my career was to uh, was to work with with James Patterson for over a decade. His whole style is, is the emphasis of, uh, of of a nice fast pace. And, uh, so I d- doing this for, for 10 years, I just, I kind of had it, uh, I kind of had the pacing down, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, getting in and out of a scene as fast as possible and trying to make it as, as exciting as possible. Right. It was, it, it was really, it was a lot of it was work with James Patterson and really kind of training my, uh, pacing DNA or whatever.
4: Yeah. Well, he's, uh, he's out there teaching those master classes now, but you kind of got a private master class for 10 years.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was great. Um, it was like having a, a writing coach. You know, I was just constantly getting, it was, you know, because there was a deadline to, to, to get work done and blah, blah. So I was always kind of under the gun and, okay, more stuff came in and I had to keep working. And uh, it, it really helped me. It helped to train me because I had to get it done <laughs> because it was a job.
4: Yeah. Know? Well, after collaborating for so long, what was it like to, to step back uh, with this new novel and be in total control again?
0: Yeah, it, it felt good. It felt... Um, uh, cause I, when I first, I first started out my career, uh, my first book came out in 1999 and, uh, I wrote, I actually, th- I wrote three crime novels by myself. Which were, they were a little, they were definitely grittier than James Patterson's stuff. They were more kind of hard boiled crime fiction, more R rated, as I said. And then I, when I worked with Jim it was more like, it was more PG, PG 13. So yeah. So going back, you know, again, it's like anything else where, uh, you're always just trying to kind of s- stretch and, you know, you don't want to get complacent and, I don't know but other people but the closer I got to 50 I said to myself you know what I I need to kind of try it again just 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 having my my own pure vision and just going and taking another stab at uh, at doing it alone again so
4: yeah. Well, I, I recently uh, crossed over that 50 mark myself and it does make you sort of reevaluate. And and I think writing is definitely one of those vocations that, that we have that you're constantly e- evaluating and reevaluating your own place in it and, and trying to sort of challenge yourself. I mean, is, is one, of, one of the things, did you want to kind of hit the reset button on, on your own writing and, and and try something that was a little bit different? Uh...
0: Uh, you know what it was, it was a matter of... Um... I wanted to kind of do it without a net. You know what I'm saying? Like I just wanted to kind of just say, okay, just to motivate myself more because you get a little complacent. I I I need just to kind of freshen it up, just to kind of get me to become more motivated because I do I I love writing and, uh, but you know when it just get if it's getting a little rote, you know you get kind of stuck in a little bit of a a rut or whatever. You know just you know for your own personal being motivated, being excited about sitting down and doing it it was it was really time to, to really to motivate my, myself again to kind of get back into it.
4: Well, I think that's that's good advice for uh, for a lot of young writers and I, now you wrote those early novels too while holding down, you know, day jobs and, and stuff. So I what kind of advice do you have for the for new writers who say that they don't have time to write? I mean, you, you made it work.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I again, I was motivated. Yeah, it's funny. Like most guys, all of us, we could we could all look like bodybuilders, right? We, we all know the rest of <laughs> Right, the recipe is you. you work out with heavy weight hours a day. Uh, if you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, he was working out six hours a day. Wow, that's all you. Have, but that's all you have to do. The recipe. You could do it too, Eric. I could do it. You know, I, I don't look like Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I, I wish because I because I, I don't want to work out for six hours a day. It's just you know, it's my it's mind boggling that it's, it just seems so painful to do all day long. But yeah, <laughs> but the recipe is there, but you have to have the motivation to do it. And my motivation in becoming a writer was I was married, uh, I, had, I had small kids, and uh, I, I, had a cr- I had a very crummy job. I was working as a, as a doorman on Park Avenue. It was an interesting job, but I wasn't getting paid a lot of money. And I, I, I needed to kind of um, to do something else. And I said to myself, you know what I, I need to do is, because uh, I've always loved to read, and I was an English major in college and stuff. And I said, you know, I, I'm going to take a crack at writing a novel. And, uh, and it really was, the motivation was my wife and, and my kids. What I would do, I would write, uh, I, lived in the, I lived in the Bronx and I worked in Manhattan. I worked on Park Avenue and the train from 242nd Street in the Bronx to 15, to the 59th Street uh, station on the, on the one line, I, 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 I would write right in that hour. Oh, wow. It was just that period of time where I could get it like one page done, you know, and it just, that was, so that was my, my, my writing studio was the number one train subway car. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, I was motivated. I think that's the key ingredient to all success is to be motivated. Yeah. I wasn't really doing it for myself. I was really doing it for, was doing it for my wife and my son and my daughter.
4: Wow that's uh, see that that's a, a an inspiring story I think for uh, for a lot of people who yeah I, I, it's so easy to make excuses but uh, boy, if you can write uh, a whole novel on, on a train <laughs> that's that's impressive.
0: yeah it was funny and then in my second job I worked as a I worked as a phone guy and so I wrote my first novel whatever and again a lot of first novels it's uh, okay you know I got published it was amazing. you're not gonna quit your day job right with the first one. Right. The right. second one, I actually wrote it in the back of it because then I got a job as a, as a telephone worker. So the second novel was written in the back of a telephone truck. So oh, wow. I don't know if that's an upgrade, but <laughs> 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 it, it's funny because w- once I, I finally sat down and, and I finally got an office for myself and a desk and everything like this, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. I'm like, this, this is too quiet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there's no homeless people. You know? uh, this is you know. There's not enough whatever.
4: <laughs> that's great. Well, one of the great stories that I read about you is uh, as a first-generation Irish American, you you spent some summers back in Ireland, but uh, far from a vacation, it sounds like they put you to work.
0: Yes, yeah, uh, <laughs> my uh, because bo- on both sides, of my because my my father and my mother b- both came from Ireland, and uh, yeah, and both of their families had farms. This was the summer I was fourteen, and uh, yeah, and they woke me up very early in the morning. Yeah, I thought I was going to be like, hey, this is going to be fun. I'm going to be go- going to pubs and. You know, seeing uh, kissing the blarney stone, but no, no, no. <laughs> we, they were waking about six o'clock in the morning and said, "Come on, get in the back of the tractor. We're taking you out." You know, um, so they worked me, but uh, it was fun. It was great. I mean, um, the thing looking back at it now, the the, the most startling thing was uh, comparing the people in Ireland, especially the, the young guys I was hanging around because I, I had cousins around my age, and they had this little town, this little rural town, and cabin. What struck me immediately was like how nice all the, the kids were. You know, like they were nice and gentle because, like, you know, I grew up in the Bronx, and I mean, the people on uh-huh. my block—they were brutal. <laughs> yeah, and just comparatively, like, like some of these kind of really nice Irish kids, like some of them would try to act a little tough, and I'd be like, "Oh my god!" You know, I, I said, "Man," because I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm a, I'm a nice person, but I said, just from my experience of, of, of my block, because how brutal it was, I said to myself, "Man, if I had to." live here i i'd be like the godfather of this town in about half an hour (laughs) right and i'm a nice guy but it's just because they're so they're like sweet people you know they're funny and they're nice and they say hello you know and just the the people like on my block they were just like it was it was doggy dog so pretty funny wow (laughs) <laughs>
4: yeah. Well, when you head back over there now, or do they still put you to work by saying like, hey, tell me a story? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been back there in a long time. Um,
0: I, I would probably not go out to work with them this time. No,
4: <laughs> no way.
0: I'd, I'd head to the pub. I'll buy. Come on. We'll go to the pub. <laughs>
4: Well, that's it for this time i'll be back again next week with another one of these bonus quarantine episodes with some very special guest co-hosts and some special authors as well so until then please subscribe to the show rate the show if you get a chance and tell a book loving friend about us you can find the show at writertypespodcast.com and also find our patreon page there and you can always find us over twitter at WriterTypes. More about my books is always at ericbeatner.com. So please stay safe and healthy, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening.